0: Amen. You can be seated. I know there's a few less of us in here than last week, but as I, as I think about gathering for worship, whether we're in the physical space or you're watching on your computer screen or on your phone or wherever that is, I've just been reflecting that we're still one body. We're still one church. We're still one campus community, and, and what I know is, is when Jesus died and the veil ripped, we're able to worship Him and access Him at any moment and in any place at any time. And so we, we believe that and we speak that. So whether you're online or whether you're here, just so excited to worship with you and, and open God's Word. So I want to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get going. So Father, You are faithful and You are good, Will you open our eyes to see you, Jesus, and our ears to hear your word and our hearts to receive what you have for us, for your glory and for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I am a father. I have a three-year-old son named Zion and a one-year-old son named Judah. And they're awesome and fun and terrible and beautiful and Crazy and all, all of the adjectives, that's what they are and, and they're wonderful But if you were to ask me three years ago if I was ready to be the, a father, I would have said absolutely not Right, it's this weird thing, you have nine months approximately to prepare for a kid, and then you go to the hospital, which for us was like three weeks early, and I really needed the extra three weeks. And we get to the hospital, and you're at the hospital for two days, and then apparently if you're at the hospital for two days, all of a sudden you're allowed to take a human home. It makes no sense. Like, at the hospital they just say, don't kill your baby, basically. Like, I'm frightened. They're like, this is what you need to do, and we go home, and I'm freaking out. I have no idea what to do. I don't feel like a father. I don't feel ready to be a father. But yet, I still had to live into my fatherhood. I had to change diapers. I had to get up in the middle of the night. I had to feed my son. I had to take care of every need of his because he couldn't. And if you were to ask me today, I still am not quite sure that I'm ready to be a father. But I had to begin to live into it. Right? Whether I felt like it or not... I had to claim my fatherhood. And, and I think the same can be said probably for us as Christians. We don't always feel ready to be like Jesus or to begin to minister to people or act like Jesus or speak like Jesus, but we are called to be like Jesus. We are called to be like the Father whether we think we're worthy or whether we're, we're ready for it or not. And, and so that's the purpose of Colossians chapter 3. That's the purpose of this text. Paul has laid out the truth of the gospel in Colossians 3 verses 1 through 11. And now we move into the purpose of the spiritual life. Which is to be like Jesus. Which is to put on the clothing of Christ. Which is to live into the attributes of Jesus that Paul goes into. So I want to ask us a a pretty simple question this morning. I want to ask you, do you want to be like the Father? Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to look like him and act like him? Here's what Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 12. He says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. I want to read it for us again. It's short. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Paul transitions from in verse 5 when he said, Put to death these earthly things, put to death sexual immorality, put to death evil desires, put to death impurity, put to death our sin and our flesh. And he now moves into and transitions into putting on compassion. This verb tense, to put on, describes an initial decisive action. Right? Paul is saying you have to choose to put on compassion. Right? Just like this morning you chose what to wear unless you're wearing the same thing you wore last night, which is another problem all on its own. But, right, you put on your shoes and you put on your pants and you you put on your, your clothes He's telling us we must decisively choose as the church, as Christians, to be like Jesus. To speak and to act like Jesus, whether we feel like it or not. And I think if I only did the things that I felt like doing and never did the things that I didn't want to do, I'd be a really bad Christian. I don't always feel like being patient or kind. I don't always feel like loving people. I don't always feel like talking to people. Right? But we're called to put on compassion, whether we feel like it or whether we feel ready. And reflecting on his spiritual life in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, Henry Nowen says this, my final vocation is indeed to become like the Father and to live out his divine compassion in my daily life. This is the purpose of the spiritual life. To move from rebellious, repentant son or daughter to welcoming and compassionate father or mother, to be like Jesus. Now, and continues as he reflects on his personal journey, he, he says this Do I want to be like the father? Do I want to be not just the one who is being forgiven, but also the one who forgives? Not just the one who is welcomed home. But also the one who welcomes home. Not just the one who receives compassion, but also the one who offers it as well. So I ask us do you really want to become like the Father? Because I think one of the biggest obstacles or hindrances of our Christian walk and the Christian life is we pause between Colossians 3 verse 11 and Colossians 3 verse 12. We pause right there. We receive all the benefits of childhood. We receive grace. We receive forgiveness. We receive love. But we never move into adulthood. Right? In your life, you didn't choose to become a child. You didn't choose the family you you were born into. You didn't choose to start living. But in some way, we do choose to become a father. I had to choose to begin to live into my fatherhood and accept the responsibility of taking care of my two boys. And I think part of this is we live in a culture that preaches a gospel of self-actualization that teaches us to indulge every childish desire we have to consume anything we want to and to produce what is only of benefit to us. We're taught to to indulge every childish desire we have. It's all about self-gratification. And it seems like we're constantly trying to escape the task of fatherhood, of compassion and kindness and love and forgiveness. We're trying to escape the task of being a follower of Jesus. But Paul is calling us to put on the clothing of Christ. But it's not just only on us. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, okay, that's it, now you got to put it on the end. Paul, Paul continues, he says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Before Paul gets to the clothing of Christ... He roots the attributes in our identity as God's child. He roots compassion and love and forgiveness and kindness in our identity as a son and a daughter of the living God. And to understand the context and the gravity of what Paul is doing here, it's it's really important. Paul is writing to Gentiles in Colossae. And so Paul is is giving an invitation from God to Gentiles. He is saying, you know what? You have the same exact status before God as Israel and the Jewish people. He's saying, you have the same status before God as God's chosen one. And I don't want us to miss this. Aaron talked about this last week. Don't miss this because the greatest distinction in all of Scripture between people groups is that of Jew, God's chosen ones. God's set-apart ones, God's loved ones, those included in God's family. And that of Gentile, the foreigner, the outsider, the marginalized, the alien, those excluded from God's community. And what Paul is doing is saying, Gentile, you are chosen. You are loved. You are set apart. You are included. You're welcome here. Your status and your honor is that of a son and daughter of the living God. For all of history, they've been excluded, and now they are being included into God's community and into God's family. And so, Christian, those online, those sitting here, the same is true for you and for me. You are chosen, you are set apart, and you are deeply loved by God. All too often, before we begin to love people or forgive people or put on compassion, we think God has to purify us just a little bit more. We think God just has to give us another gift or a little bit more courage or a little bit more boldness. We think God has to approve of us just a little bit more before we can move and we're stuck sitting between verses 11 and 12 because we've never actually believed that we've received all the fullness of who God is but the reality is you are declared righteous right now you are chosen right now you are forgiven right now you are loved and highly valued right now god could not love you any more or any less than he does in this moment as you listen to this because he loves you to his fullest extent Always. So we don't have to wait around to begin to put on compassion. And it's this place of being chosen and set apart and loved by God that's that place from which compassion flows. Compassion is not something we just muster up, although we do have to choose it to some extent. But it's something that overflows from our identity as a child. ...of the living God. It's where it comes from. It's who we are. Why are we able to choose compassion? It's because of what Jesus has done for us. And it's because of who he has called us... ...as his children. So what is compassion? As we get to the actual word. This could be translated to... ...put on the bowels of compassion right? Bowels, right? It's your insides. So compassion is, it starts with that feeling when you see something that's unjust, that's not as it should be. Compassion starts with the feeling when I see one of my sons get hurt. Like it's that feeling that I'm just, mo- it it's just moves me to scoop them up and to hold them and to do something about it. Right, Zion the other day was like running inside to the house, but he couldn't quite get the door, so like the door just stopped him in his tracks, and he nailed his mouth on the doorknob, and he's bleeding, and he's crying, and it's just like my insides are just like, oh, I want to take the pain. Compassion starts with the feeling, as Aaron described last week when he was a teenager, and he saw the Indian man getting curb stomped. Right, it's that feeling inside when we see something not as God intended, but it's not just to deeply feel something it's, it's much more than that The English word Compassion comes from a Latin word That means co-suffering So compassion Means to suffer with So compassion it Isn't just a feeling but it's such A deep feeling that it moves Us to action It moves us to Relieve someone's suffering Sometimes Sometimes We interchange the words empathy and sympathy and compassion, and we think they mean the same thing But I actually think it's really really important to differentiate them Empathy refers to feeling what another person is feeling Maybe that's because you're going through it yourself Maybe it's because you've experienced it in the past, but it's just a feeling Sympathy Basically, it means you understand what a person is feeling, but you're not necessarily feeling it yourself. Sometimes, the way I describe sympathy is just means you're sorry for somebody. And, and sometimes the problem with sympathy is it means you're, you know, you who are more than are feeling a little sorry for those who are less than, but you're actually not going to do anything about it. That's what I chalk up sympathy to be. But compassion means your feelings have moved you, To relieve the suffering of another person, they're so deep of a feeling inside of you that you move to relieve a person's suffering, hurt, and pain. Matthew. Richard, he's actually, I hope this is okay, he's actually a French Buddhist monk. I believe in common grace. I think Jesus would love this definition of compassion. But this is how he defines compassion. He says, compassion is unconditional love applied to the suffering of others. Compassion is unconditional love applied to the suffering of others. Isn't this God's work toward us? I think this is the first article of clothing or the first attribute discussed here because compassion is the feeling and action that best describes God's work in the world to you and to me all throughout history. We can go back to the garden in Genesis 3 when sin entered into the world. God was so moved with compassion that he didn't shame human beings but he went to look for them and he said, where are you? And he set in motion a plan for redemption right away. And and just so you know, God didn't kick Adam and Eve out of the garden as a a punishment. He actually removed Adam and Eve out of the garden because he didn't want them to eat of the tree of life and live forever in the sinful state. That was actually, he was so moved with compassion that he removed his children so they wouldn't suffer for all of eternity. The ministry of Jesus can be summarized as a ministry of compassion. He's the shepherd that leaves the 99 secure and, and content sheep, and he goes after the one who's wandering, who's hurting, who's in pain, who's suffering. He tells the parable of the father who welcomes home the rebellious and repentant son, who doesn't even ask for an explanation, but just simply forgives and throws a party. Jesus heals the lepers and the sick, and the blind, and the lame. He associates with the tax collectors, and the drunkards, and the people who were considered outcasts of the day. And in the greatest act of compassion of all, God so grieved for the sin of humanity in the world that he sent his son to die. The work of the cross is a work of compassion, of applying unconditional love the suffering of others and now we're called to put on that same compassion but how do we do it how how do we begin to put on compassion I think where it starts, so often we want to move really quickly and just start acting and changing the world. So often we, we uh, want to do something big, and, which is great, and God can do a big work. But I think compassion starts when we learn how to grieve. It starts with learning how to grieve. That is the pathway to compassion. And basically all it means to grieve is allowing the sins of the world... Yours included, mine included, to pierce your heart and shed tears for those sins. To grieve means we so grieve the hurt and the pain in the world, the death that is taking place, the fires that are consuming California, the floods and the hurricanes that are hitting our coasts, the individual sins that you are struggling with and that you can't seem to shake. It is just allowing it to pierce your heart and to shed tears. Over them, but it's kind of hard to grieve in our culture rather grieving is, is seen as being pretty weak and, and i think so, so what do we need to do to grieve i think we need to stop competing against other people i actually think competition is the opposite of compassion Right? Competition is the opposite of compassion. If, if compassion is applying unconditional love to one's suffering, I think competition, when it's done poorly, is taking advantage of another person's weakness and suffering so that you can be better. And this, this happens in little ways. In our, in our community. So I just recently bought some AirPods Pro, which is so, it makes it weird to say AirPods and then just, anyway, but AirPods Pro, it doesn't even make sense. But I just bought them and I've been saving for them and I wanted them for a while. But here's the other reason why I wanted them, because when I, when I stick those things in my ear, it says something about me. It's a status symbol, right? The clothes we wear, the shoes we wear, the phones we have, right? It, it's, it's competition. We do this in the way that we joke with one another, right? We really love sarcasm, which sarcasm is really just kind of the lowest form of humor, uh, right? And there's a bit of truth in every single joke. I don't know if you've heard that before, but it's true. And, and we, we jab each other, and, and we put each other down, and really all that is, even if you're having fun, is competition, right? Have you ever been at a, at, a, at a party, or at a dinner, or with your roommates, and like there's just the guy, or the female, or the girl, who always one-ups a story, Right? It's just, a, it's just competing for power, influence, and control. Social media is competition. We project the image we think other people want to see, and we get likes, and we want people to notice us. And even we sometimes we cloak our weakness on social media. We, we are broken and we're vulnerable on social media, which is some weird way to gain power, influence, and control and compete. Look how broken I am. And not always. But we live in a culture of competition. And, and I think this is because we, we live in an honor-shame culture. Traditionally, people talk about America and the West as a guilt-innocence culture. What that means is more, it's an individualistic society um, that basically where people who break the law are found guilty, and they seek justice, they seek forgiveness. But an honor-shame culture is more of a, a collectivist culture, where people are shamed for not fulfilling group expectations, and then they seek to restore their honor or their status before the community. And sociologists right now are talking about several dif- different reasons why America and maybe the West as a whole is becoming more of an honor shame culture. One of those is social media, but one I think is a little more applicable to today it's our politics, it's our identity politics. Which basically say, you know what, we get people to support policies based on the interests of our social group. Right, identity politics means we are going to get people to support our policies because it's of best interest to us, to you. Even if that means it's not to somebody else. And this turns into tribalism. This creates an us versus them mentality. And what tribalism does, it says, you know what? We are going to support our candidate. We're going to support our person no matter what, even if it means diminishing the status of other people, of outsiders, of those who are not in our group. And isn't that what's happening in our world? Isn't that what's happening and playing out in the news of Democrat versus Republican, of conservative versus progressive? And this isn't just happening in politics, this is happening in our church. Right? We, we, are, we are creating an us-versus-them mentality when we say, you know what, coronavirus, I am going to have more faith in everyone and we are going to gather. Or, you know what, we, we create an us-versus-them mentality when we begin to say, you know what, we're not going to gather at all and everyone who's gathering is sinful. All that is doing is creating an us-versus-them mentality, and that is the opposite of compassion competition it creates a dividing line and the way of Jesus is never division that's the easy way out and I think as we stop competing and we start seeing the hurting and the pain and the suffering of others it'll change everything Because as we stop competing against people, we will begin to see people as they really are. We will begin to see them as fellow image bearers of the living God. And we won't feel the need to be better than them and to compete against them. But we will begin to see their hurt and their pain and their suffering. And you won't have to look very far because we're all hurting in some way. We're all suffering in some way. And as we stop stop competing and start seeing people, we will begin to see the root of people's sin, the root of people's anger, the root of people's harsh words. Because too often we react to what people say and we react to what people do, but underneath all of that is a root of hurt and sin and suffering, which is where we're called to set our roots in. We're not called to respond to this but we're called to plant ourselves in the pain of where that, play, where that sin and weaponization of words comes from. So We're called to stop competing, start seeing people's hurt, pain and suffering and then set our roots in that place. Not sure if you're familiar with the lotus flower. Man, I'm just, you know, Eastern, you know Buddhist monk, now a lotus flower. There's a theme here. My wife, actually, as I was kind of describing to her my message, she, she told me this illustration, and I took it. So, total credit goes to my wife. She's wonderful. But the lotus flower is different than other flowers. It begins to grow underneath water, and it's surrounded by dirt and muck and fish and mud. And it's in the mud and the dirty and rough conditions in which it spreads its roots and begins to bloom. And the end result is that it arises above the mud and blooms into a beautiful flower. So, in order to grow, the lotus roots itself in the mud. So, how do we begin to put on compassion? Root yourself in the mud. In the suffering and in the hurt and in the pain of others. Don't pick a side, but plant yourself in the muddy tension of pain, of suffering. It's what Jesus did. And some people may want to say, well, Sam, didn't Jesus divide people? Didn't he separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares? Didn't he do that? And and my response to that would be, yes, he did. But you know the dividing lines Jesus made? He actually always crossed over them. He went to the adulterous woman and protected her. He went to the well of the adulterous Samaritan woman and and gave her hope. Right? Jesus in Matthew 25 literally separates the goats from the sheep. You want to know who the goats are? The goats are the ones who are cast into the pit of hell. And you know what they're described? I wasn't going to read it, but I think it's important. This is how Jesus describes the goats the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did you, we see a stranger and welcome you? When, when did we see you naked? When, when did we see you who, sick? And then Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You know who the goats are? The ones who didn't extend compassion. But you know who the sheep are? So the only dividing line God creates is the ones who extend compassion and the ones who don't. Because God's heart is with the suffering. The least of these, God's heart, the sheep, are the sinners and the prostitutes and the drunkards and the drug addicts. They are the ones who are in most pain and most hurt because that is where God's heart is the most. And we are called to put on compassion and extend it to them just as God extended it to us. So Christians, can we stop competing against one another? Can we stop debating on who has the right view of COVID and just grieve that 967,000 people have died? Almost a million people have died, 200,000 in our nation. Can we please stop competing over who supports? Band, you you guys can come up. Can we stop competing over who, who either supports the police the most or the least? And we, can we just begin to grieve over the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Philando Castile and Eric Garner and Trayvon Martin and so many more? Right? Fellow image bearers of the living God have died, and we're debating whether or not they deserve it. That's ridiculous. Can we stop competing with our friends and our roommates and our peers and just begin to look for their hurt? Can we stop flying flags and putting signs in our yard? Maybe just put both of them in there, right? Just say, you know what, I don't know who to support, but here's both of them and everybody's welcome. So we're going to sing. But last week Aaron said he was infinitely more worried and concerned about the calloused border around our hearts than anything else but the way in which we tear down our calloused borders of our hearts is compassion it's to learn to grieve it's to stop competing start seeing people's pain and hurt and to set our roots in the mud and if you're not sure where to start just begin by praying the prayer god teach me to grieve god teach me to hurt over sin Mine and the world's. And maybe, just maybe, the way of Jesus is not the power of competition, but it's the power of compassion.